Welcome back to Elder Side, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're talking about the story Limping to Jerusalem Post 1100 by Alan Moore. And this story is chapter six of the novel Voice of the Fire, which tells the story of Northampton, England over the course of 6,000 years as a series of loosely connected novellas and short stories. Voice of the Fire was originally published in 1996. This story was brought to you today by a Patreon supporter who nominated us, uh, our covering this novel, really chapter by chapter. It continues to get uh, nominated and then our other supporters vote on it. So yeah, that's how we're bringing this to you today. It's a really awesome way for us to, to get to cover some of these books. Yeah, thank you so much for the nomination. Of course, we are at a point now on Elder Sign where everything that we cover is either commissioned by a listener or nominated to a ballot and then voted on by our Patreon supporters. And uh, if you're interested in participating in that, you can join us on Patreon. You can get discounts on nominations and commissioned episodes, even free nominations and commissioned episodes at some of our higher tiers. Plus, you, you get to vote for what we cover. So this is a, a a pretty big story. Some of the stories in Voice of the Fire have been really quite big, actually. So we've done two episodes rather than one on them. This is one such story. We're going to do two episodes on Limping to Jerusalem. This is the recap. And uh, I'm pretty jazzed for this story. There's a lot of moving parts here. Uh, in fact, <laughs> probably during the recap here, Brandon, I'm going to be biting my tongue a lot so that we don't get bogged <laughs> down in those moving parts, at least not until the discussion episode where I will gleefully bog us down in all of those moving parts. Uh, so yeah, I'm pretty excited for that. But uh, there's something else I'm really excited about as well, Brandon, that I don't think you would know because I'm the keeper of the files for the network, but this is actually episode 150 of Elder Sign. And Whoa. frankly, I feel like we just recorded Temple of Doom to celebrate episode 100, but somehow here we are already. This is unbelievable. I mean, we just keep plugging away at this show, don't we? And uh, it's a lot of fun. What a, what a great uh, milestone marker to hit with 150 episodes. I yeah, wow. What a what a gift this show has been, I think, for us and, and just for our ability to get books and read them and talk about them. It's really awesome. Yeah, I realized that this morning just when I was getting ready. And of course, you and I actually have already recorded probably about 10 more episodes because those are commissioned episodes, which means actually we need to start thinking about what we're going to do to celebrate episode 200, <laughs> which of course is something we will let our Patreon supporters vote on. So that was a note I had to make to myself this morning is uh, get that on the next ballot because that's uh, that's the only way we'll we'll know it well enough in advance You know what, what we're going to be covering. So yeah, pretty, pretty exciting. But yeah, let's get into the the story at hand because we're going to we're going to be doing this one for a while, Brandon. So take us away. Yeah, well, there's some introductory work to do before we get into the recap just to set up the time period of the story and also the manner in which the story is told. So this chapter opens maybe only 250 years or so after November Saints. More gives us the date as you pointed out, Glenn, of post AD 1100. And this has got to be the shortest time leap between chapters that we've seen so far in Voices of the Fire. But I think there's a reason for that short time leap, and it might be because Moore has a second story to tell about the medieval church before the Anglican church is founded. I guess also he wants to discuss the Crusades, and that's going to show up in this story too. 
This really is the shortest time leap that we have gotten so far, though you've actually presented it in the longest terms possible, which is because of the the nature of November Saints, right? So saying 250 years, that we get if we're dating the jump from the earliest of the three periods that are covered in November Saints, which is roughly the year 270. But the date on that story is actually 1064. But then we had talked about how the frame of the story is actually set in the 1080s or so. It's set later than the date that Moore has put on the story itself. So this story then, Limping to Jerusalem, is set Really, it's set right around 1100. I don't know why Moore is being cagey about it again. This is the thing that he does for no good reason, I don't think. But yeah, at any rate, it's a jump of about 20 years from the frame of November Saints. Moore does have a specific reason for telling this story. It's not what you've posited here, but I will wait until the discussion to elaborate on what that is. That's one of the moving parts I do not want to get us bogged down in here on this episode. Well, I'm glad to hear about it because uh, I think as our listeners will slowly find out uh, at the pace of my retelling of the recap, the story baffled me in, in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of it is because it's rooted in so much history uh, in a period that I'm just not extremely familiar with. And uh, so, yeah, we'll have a lot to talk about in the discussion episode. But I, I did bring up the Crusades and limping to Jerusalem takes place in two time periods, one of which is, uh, you know, involving the Crusades. It's narrated by one man. His name is Lord Simon. And it's narrated as he makes his way through an afternoon and an evening uh, in one day while he's reminiscing about the time, you know, that he went to the Crusades. So now that we've got all this introductory work done, let's go into the story here. The story opens with Lord Simon returning to his castle with his squire. Uh, the church that houses the relics of St. Ragnar, the relics that we saw in November Saints, is in a state of disrepair. Lord Simon knows the story of the nun whose legs were healed and so forth. Basically, the story that if you were reading this as a novel, you would have just read. Um, but mostly, Lord Simon is in an unsettled state. I mean, that's kind of how we meet him. First of all, we learn that he doesn't like to think about human heads, which seems like a, <laughs> a strange fact to learn about your narrator. One of the first things to learn about them. And we will learn more about that, why that is later on. But second of all, Lord Simon feels as though he and God are on the outs since he's gone to the Crusades and returned. Lord Simon wants to complain about the wet weather, but he's actually all right with it since he's seen enough desert sands and dryness in his life to wish for anything other than England's climate. So we have the sense of this guy who's just kind of curmudgeonly and uh, a malcontent. There are a few more things, though, to know about Lord Simon in the present, in this afternoon and evening uh, portion of the story. He's married to a woman named Maud. Uh, he has a son as well, and we'll hear very little about his son in the story. In fact, so little that this is the first and last time I think I'm going to mention him. But regardless of that, it's clear that his relationship with his wife is pretty bad. Like she hates him a lot, and she hates him all the time. It's a <laughs> it's a it's a constant sort of situation. Uh, and Lord Simon actually thinks about this, and when he does, he regrets that he didn't beat her harder the first time he tried to bed her because, you know, if he had, maybe she'd be more compliant now, 15 years after the fact. But, he, you know, he thinks, you know, you can't change the past. 
The last thing we really need to know about Lord Simon here is that he is building a church whose main structure is to be round in shape, which is not the traditional shape of a church, and it may be sacrilegious as well. At this point in the story, in the present timeline, Lord Simon is finishing his dinner and he wants to go to bed because he's thinking about uh, heads again, or one head in particular, really. I'll read this paragraph and then we can pause and fill in some more details. This is a, a paragraph describing the head that Lord Simon is thinking about. The fringe of the beard was fine and silvery. Its eyelids were stitched shut. The nose collapsed into a hole. It smelled of peppers, hot and dry. In its expression, something foreign and unreadable, there at the corner of the mouth where it had come unsewn, the small brown teeth revealed. And that ends in an ellipsis, like the teeth are revealing something, but we don't know what the teeth revealed. Uh, but we do know, as the story goes on, that this head has maybe more teeth in it than Simon and Maud combined. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Simon has one tooth left, apparently. And uh, just in general, Brandon, I think Moore is way too obsessed with teeth for my tastes in literature, <laughs> my taste in life, I think, maybe in general. But yeah, this flashback here about the head, this is just a tease. I'm not going to say any more about it than uh, until we get the revelation at the end of the story. And we are, well, I guess this is our sixth journey here into Voice of the Fire. So at this point, it just is routine that this is the point where I do a bit of orienting here. And uh, I will have a lot more to say about this in the discussion. But the big thing to note here is that since the discovery of the relics of St. Ragnar, Anglo-Saxon England has been conquered by the Duke of Normandy, whom we now call William the Conqueror. Most of the landed aristocracy of Anglo-Saxon England then was replaced by Norman aristocrats, and that includes both of these people, Simon and Maud. These are French speakers, even though here they are living in Northamptonshire. Uh, Simon and Maud, of course, also are real historical figures. And as I said, I will say more about all of this in the discussion, but what we should keep in mind here is that, yeah, these are French-speaking aristocrats who have taken their property from other people uh, and also their official position and, and done all of that at, at sword point. I should also say something here about crusading. You have said crusades a few times, Brandon, but at this point, there's been only one, which is what we now call the First <laughs> Crusade, uh, which we date as occurring from 1096 until 1099. Uh, it was a long journey, and then it was a long military campaign. So, you know, it's uh, several years, almost as long as the, the Second World War. And Moore does use the word crusade here in the story, though I should be clear that that is not a word that anyone in the Middle Ages would actually have used for this war or any other war. It is a word, it's a, a label that moderns have invented. And even just defining the term, just defining what do we mean by using the word crusade, that is the first business of any scholar who works on crusading. Um, maybe a better way to put that really is just that knowing what the arguments over definitions are is their first order of business. It's a unit I do in my classes whenever I get to teach my course on war and society in the high middle ages. I mean, in part, it's important, but also because it's just a super amount of fun to try to argue about what do we even mean by this? What is included in what counts as a crusade? What's excluded? What are the criteria we're using to uh, make those decisions and so on? And something else I do in this class that has come up here is a unit on the historiography of aristocratic women. 
Now, the short way to put this is that there is a pretty big, pretty significant historiographical debate about the power and agency of aristocratic women. And one camp in this debate describes this culture that we're looking at here, high medieval aristocratic culture, that is, describes this as a rape culture. Certainly, Moore is describing it in those terms here. I don't think there's any any doubting that, right? Maud was 15 when Simon married her, uh, while Simon himself, of course, was probably at least twice that age, which is uh, something that we in our culture, right, would certainly find disturbing. I mean, it's not even something we would just would find disturbing. It's it's illegal in our own culture, right? right. But yeah, we've we've written uh, laws to, to yes, outlaw this right, sort of thing, right? Yeah. Because we find it so disturbing. But as you have pointed out here, more has Simon rape Maud on their wedding night, and he laments that he wasn't more violent about it. I don't think this is something we need to dwell on here. I don't think it's something we want to dwell on here either. But I do want to point listeners to someplace where I have talked a little bit more about aristocratic women in the high Middle Ages and this debate about whether the term rape culture is applicable here. And that is an episode that I did over on my show, Ataz. And that was for the Guy Gabriel K novel, A Song for Arbonne. And uh, if you want more about this topic, then you can check out that episode. And then also you can check out some of the books that I recommend in that episode. It's well worth doing. I mean, more certainly does focus a lot on uh, the raping of women, either as a kind of tactic of war or as this sort of marriage situation in um, in the aristocratic class in in the high Middle Ages. So it's a, it is a big part of the story. I'm going to overlook a lot of that. I, I think just because we're not going to spend a lot of time discussing it. But if this is what you're coming to more for is this kind of like gritty uh, engagement with historiographical debates. It's in this it's in this chapter for you. We're just not going to dwell on it. And there are lots of reasons why we're not going to dwell on it. But one of them is that just I have already, as I've said, but also at some point, Jay and I are going to cover Game of Thrones, which I think everyone knows does this also. So at some point, Jay and I will have a conversation about this. That might be two years from now, but uh, I'm saving all the energy for that. And uh, yeah, we can just carry on at this point. Sure. Uh, It's also not like the driver of any plot or story element to the story. So as a for me is like kind of the coming at it from the literary perspective. Um, You know, I question the value of including so much of it in the story other than kind of uh, a reality effect that Moore is going for, which he's also doing with teeth and other kind of body stuff, most of which I'll also avoid just because I don't love it. I don't love it in literature, but um, there is a, a cracking good story here behind all of that, which we are now going to get to. So Lord Simon, as we said, has got to go to bed. He's very tired. He's old, I guess, uh, but he needs help to do so as well. He's a little infirm. He's got a, a leg that's in very bad shape. So while we're leaving Lord Simon to go to bed in the present, uh, we can turn now to the Crusades timeline. Again, this is narrated uh, by Lord Simon through the mode of his recollections as he's kind of moving about and thinking, you know, thinking about the past or how the past has helped to create the situation that he finds himself in now. Uh, So here's what we learn. Lord Simon, I don't know, entered or 
joined. I'm sure there's a correct historical term for this. Uh, he got into the Crusades in 1096 and sailed for Constantinople to join Robert, the Duke of Normandy, to attend the siege of Antioch. Now, while he's on his way, him and his band uh, are on his way, on their way to Antioch, uh, they pass a man spelling out large words in the sand dunes by digging trenches. At first, they think they're just encountering trenches, but as they get further away from them, they see that that words are being basically carved into the trenches by this man, maybe trying to get God's attention. I don't know. They pass this guy by. Then they sack a bunch of towns. They do terrible things that we've alluded to along the way. Lord Simon, though, uh, I don't know, to his credit, maybe, he wasn't like super into all the wicked acts done by the Christians in the name of the crusade. All he wanted to do was get richer. So he's, you know, motivated by greed. And he also really longs to see Jerusalem, which he tells us he, he never got to see. Once he made it to Antioch, uh, he found that the pillaging was almost over. So, you know, they end up leaving and he and his group end up in Sinai. Uh, he says like outside of Egypt. So we'll pause at this moment to catch up on some present day history uh, before we discover what Simon has found in Sinai. So back in the present day, we learn how Simon became a lord. The prior occupant of the castle that's now occupied by Lord Simon was named Walthoff, uh, a baron of King William, and he had been married to William's niece, Judith. Now, eventually, Walthoff was accused and convicted of treason, you know, and, and, and this was a situation where even his like wife testified against him. And so he was killed. Simon, I guess, was next in line. And in any event, like William wanted Simon to have this barony. And in order to strengthen Simon's claim to this land, William had hoped that Judith, again, Walthoff's now widow, would marry Simon, but she didn't want to do that. And so William suggested that uh, Judith and Walthoff's daughter Maud would marry Simon. You know, again, she's 14 or 15 when this is suggested, um, so that Judith would actually relent and marry Simon. But Judith doesn't do this. Judith allows her daughter to be married to Simon because she really, really hates Simon for some reason. Or maybe there are other reasons she didn't want to marry Simon. I don't know. Anyway, Simon ends up with Maud and this barony, and this is where he's building a round church. And the church has a, a foundation or vault that has already been completed. It's like the only part that's finished being built at this point. Yeah, this is uh, technically not a barony. It's an earldom uh, because it's England, though collectively the aristocrats of high medieval England are often referred to <laughs> as barons, which is the French word for it, the French equivalent of uh, of an earl. And yeah, this is all a matter of historical record. Moore hasn't made any of this up here. We actually have a ton of evidence for this event. One of the things that makes this really interesting is that Walthoff, as you can tell from the name, is not a Norman. He's not a, uh, a French speaker, at least not uh, that's not his mother 
mother tongue. At any rate, he's an Anglo-Saxon aristocrat. He's an Anglo-Saxon speaker. And so he has been married into the family of the Conqueror as part of the way that William the Conqueror is trying to maintain some continuity. He has dispossessed uh, more than half of the Anglo-Saxon aristocrats and bestowed their lands already on Normans, people who came with him on this campaign. But he did then also retain a number of the Anglo-Saxon aristocrats, right? Walthoff then is one of them, but they're all brought into the Norman fold through these like marriage alliances and that sort of thing. But there's complications. There's political machinations that are going on here for this event that Moore <laughs> describes. Uh, I won't dwell on it, but I will uh, recommend a book for people who are interested in reading about this event because it is super cool. Uh, last time, and by last time, I mean when we covered November Saints, I recommended a book called Dragon Lords by the Oxford scholar Eleanor Parker. This time, I'm going to recommend her other book, which is called Conquered, The Last Children of Anglo-Saxon England. There's an entire chapter of that book on Walthoff's treason and his execution. Uh, the chapter is awesome. The book is really great, too. So uh, that's, that's my recommendation for people who want to know more about this. It's upsetting to me uh, that I read so little nonfiction history. And uh, you need to be recommending these, meet these books more often, Glenn, because they do sound really <laughs> awesome. And I'm, I'm jealous that the kind of, this is your, uh, uh, you know, avenue of study. And I just, uh, I have so little knowledge of it. It's so fascinating to me. And I have one, one book on the Templars, which, you know, we'll meet in a minute and uh, a couple, a couple books on the history of Christianity. But yeah, this, this all sounds so exciting. All these events in history really interest me. And yet I have so few books on them and too many books on literary theory. So I feel like I've uh, stepped off the path somewhere, but I'm glad you're able to to keep us on track for these Alan Moore stories. <laughs> well, it's our specialization of labor, right? Because I have too few books on literary theory. So like, you know, we're, we're doing it together as a team. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Okay. Well, let's return now to uh, Sinai. Finally, we, we left that a little while ago when we learned while we learned about uh, Simon's journey to earldom. And uh, now we're going back to to Simon's time in the Crusades. So at, at one point during Simon's journey, one of his carts uh, rolled over some kind of hidden tomb or ossuary or something like that. And so his group had to stop to change the tire or whatever, you know, and while they were doing that, they noticed that there's a camp nearby of some other questing knights. So Simon and his crew go over to this campsite and discover some Rosicrucians, that is to say, Knights of the Rosy Cross, which is to say, Templars. Now, these men are led by Godfroy St. Omer, but another of the order, one Hugh de Payen, uh, regales Simon as they're you know all meeting and, and, and uh, I don't know, bread sharing together, regales Simon with the plans of this band of knights uh, to become wealthy and powerful. And, and, and how they're going to do this is essentially uh, they're going to blackmail the Pope with a relic that they found. And, you know, if Simon wants, he could also join them. He could become rich if he only were to build a church with a circular nave that can house this uh, relic, this object of blackmail within it. And if he does this, they'll be able to house the relic in there within five years or maybe 10 years. But of course, Simon has been waiting for the delivery of riches or the relic. Uh, I guess just riches. He has the relic for 15 years. 
Yeah, I don't think actually that Simon has this relic. Maybe that's something we can talk about in the discussion episode. But um, this relic that we're talking about here is a real relic. Like it, it really exists, and uh, it certainly is never in Northern England. It never, it never leaves the Holy <laughs> Land. Like we, I mean, you know, we don't have it today, but there are good records about this relic. So I don't think that that's what Moore is is trying to imply here. And Simon is not the only person who's going to be building these round churches. And we'll talk a lot more about round churches in the discussion. And just in general, you're not wrong here in the way that you're describing any of this, Brandon, but Alan Moore is pretty wrong here in the way that he's describing this. <laughs> we are meant to understand that Godfrey and Hugh are indeed the Templars, who are a military order in the Holy Land. But there actually are no Templars at this time. I'll talk more about that in the discussion. But Moore is essentially tying Northampton into conspiracy theory type lore about the Templars. I mean, it's super fun, but it is completely wrong. You have also, Brandon, left out here what I think is actually the highlight of the story, which is where Moore is connecting limping to Jerusalem, uh, this story about finding uh, the mummified body of Christ. That's the relic that they have here, right? Uh, <laughs> that we don't know that at this point in the story. That's not been revealed to us, but that's what it is. It's a story about finding the mummified body of Christ, or head of Christ, actually, I guess I should say, but connecting that to the history of the Necronomicon. And here's the line from Moore. The vile, incessant whisper of the desert insects, thought by the Saracens to be the howl of pandemonium itself. And now here's the line that we get from H.P. Lovecraft in The History of the Necronomicon. The History of the Necronomicon, colon, original title, Al-Azif, Azif being the word used by the Arabs to designate the nocturnal sound made by insects, supposed to be the howling of demons. And the illusion does not stop there either. It keeps going. So here's another line from Lovecraft about Al-Hazred, who, who wrote the Necronomicon. He claimed to have seen the fabulous Irem, or City of Pillars, and to have found beneath the ruins of a certain nameless desert town the shocking annals and secrets of a race older than mankind. So that's Lovecraft, and now here's what Moore writes. Uh, and I will say, this is a, a pretty long passage, so I think it's a, a gorgeous one. We had veered far, come almost into Egypt when we chanced upon the knights in red and white. All of that week our travel had been hard and filled with queer occurrence, as, when five days sooner, we had seen the ground beneath our largest and most deeply laden wagon crack apart, so that the whole front end of it plunged down into the sudden cave that yawned beneath. We clambered down through rising veils of dust to look upon the damage, where we found an ancient buried tomb or bone room stretched about us in a stale dark, whereupon the sun's harsh, brilliant shafts now fell after a wait of centuries." It had almost a chapel feel, its huge descending pillars fashioned not with mortar, but with light. Piled all about were skulls, some of them crushed like morbid eggs beneath the iron wheels of our fallen cart, sharp flakes of yellowed shell upon the whiter sands. It took the most part of a day to raise the wagon up from out of its pit, and by the close of it we all were coughing fearfully and spat great quids of jelly. Sometime later, in the lower ranks, a fellow named Patrice swore that he'd watched a bright and quivering city hanging in the dawn, all of its frightening weight suspended high above the further dunes. And it's these pillars of light and the vision of the hanging city that I think, you know, to me, suggest that Moore also has Iram in mind here. Iram, I should say, this is not something that Lovecraft or Moore made up. Uh, it is 
a, a real literary or historical place that we don't really quite know where it is. It's basically a desert version of Atlantis. It's this sort of mythical lost city in the, the desert. So yeah, these are these two places where Moore is connecting what is happening to Simon here with the history of the Necronomicon. That is really awesome, and I and I totally miss that. I think mostly because I, I I haven't read the history of the Necronomicon in a really long time, so it kind of wasn't on my mind. It's a it's brilliant uh, association to make between these two these two uh, texts. There's there's a lot going on actually in what you brought up. So first of all, I want to say that uh, it was really unclear to me whether or not uh, Simon had housed the relic because it. It seems like he hasn't in the text. It also seems like he has. He's, you know, and whether he's waiting for riches or waiting for the relic, whether they're the same thing, it's a real open question, I think, for the story. Uh, But on, on a totally different level, I think Moore is doing something really interesting with his prose in this story. Uh, I don't know if our our listeners caught, say, like the meter of the the prose. Say when you when you mark stressed and unstressed syllables, but in French, uh, it's all the syllables are kind of stressed equally by and large in pronunciation. And I think for Moore. Uh, to kind of give this story, you know, write it in English, but let us know that these are French-speaking people. He pretty much wrote the whole story in equally stressed syllables. And it can actually be a little bit grating until you get into the prose. And Glenn, I'm really glad you read that passage because it does highlight once you really get into the rhythm of Moore's writing of this story, there are are some real beauties. But he's kind of uh, using a French linguistic uh, convention of pronunciation to write the sentences of the story uh, to give it this sense of, I don't know, Frenchness. It's a fascinating trick. I'm not 100% convinced that it works, but I am convinced that that's what he's doing and that it's a really, really interesting approach to storytelling, to getting the style across, to communicating um, the language of the people who are thinking and speaking which is a you know a language foreign to English, so a really really interesting choice as a storyteller here on Moore's part. Yeah, that's an awesome observation and something that we should point out. I think that we've maybe lost scope of or lost sight of a little bit in some of the more recent stories that we've covered here. Uh, you know, from this book, is that Moore is writing each chapter in a different writing style. We certainly talked about the writing style for the first the first story <laughs> a lot, and I think a little bit for the second story as well. But we didn't talk about it, I don't think, at all when we covered November Saints, which also is written in a very distinct way. I think probably this is my favorite of them in terms of the the writing. This one read the best to me. I had real complaints, even just intellectually, about what Moore was up to in the first two stories with with the writing. Uh, I've had, you know, not, I have not had complaints about that since then, but I still think that actually just for me in terms of flow of language, ability to just immerse myself in the story and not actually be thinking about the language quite so much to find it jarring, I guess, this is probably the the, the one that, that feels, I don't know, rightest, correctest to, to me. I liked this one the best, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I think that once... Once you get into the rhythm or lack of rhythm of the 
of the patterns of speech, it does kind of start to flow in an interesting way. Your brain adjusts. In other words, it's just the the focus is a little different. Uh, and as I said, I'm just I'm a little bit in awe of Moore's uh, conception of the project for this chapter. Um, even though the first couple pages were really difficult for me to read, but then you get into it and then you get a paragraph like you just read, Glenn, and it's just like kind of kind of awesome what he's able to do within the limits of his project that he set for himself. Yeah, it certainly evokes a mood, right? That that really, really got me. And before we move on, I mean, there's still a lot more to cover here in the recap. But before we move on, I do want to say you can certainly be forgiven for not having recognized the allusions to the history of the Necronomicon here. You know, Jay and I have done an episode on that within the last year that's available on Patreon for people who are interested. Jay, of course, my my oldest friend, he and I both uh, trained as, as medieval historians. So Jay and I did an episode on the history of the Necronomicon where uh, I read a line of it, and then we talked about it. Then I read another line into the microphone, and we talked about it for 10 minutes, right? So every single line of this story is something I have had a conversation with Jay about for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes or so within the last calendar year. So I'm glad to have accidentally, coincidentally done that work because... I dropped the book at this point and then I had to like catch my breath. I, then I slow clapped once I like, you know, got over that, got control of my body again and just, you know, wanted to cheer. I thought this was, was so awesome. So, um, I guess I, so I also, owe, I guess a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters who make doing that extra kind of work there, those extra shows possible. Cause without, without that, I would, I don't think I would have noticed this illusion either. It's really awesome, and, and it's so much fun to make those discoveries. But um, let's return now to limping to Jerusalem. So we are back in the present, and Simon has gone to bed, but he's had some bad dreams. And the dreams are about a nun trying to take his good leg, saying she needs it to walk. So there's some, you know, another connection to November Saints here. Um, so he wakes up from this bad dream. He gets everyone out of bed uh, in order to drag Maud down to his round church that is still under construction to explain to her why it's so important to him. So they head down there. And while they're on their way, we learn more about this business in Sinai. Uh, Simon is, you know, again with these early Templars and he agrees to build the church that they are telling him to build, but he wants to see the relic that will grant this group of knights wealth and power. So Godfrey takes him to a place nearby where others in the order are doing some light, light worshiping, I guess. And Simon is having flashbacks to this experience, really, as he descends the foundation of the round nave, uh, which we now learn has something to do with the, the resurrection of Christ. The building of this church in the round is meant to represent in some way Christ's resurrection. And this is the point in the story where all of the various elements come together. You already pointed this out, Glenn, but the relic is a head. Uh, it is heavily suggested to be the head of Christ, uh, which we can take up in a bit. Um, and basically, by keeping mum about this discovery, the Templars can be the secret power behind the power of the church. So basically, like I said, it's a blackmail plot. They're going to say to the Pope, hey, we have Christ said, and the Pope will say, okay, I'll do whatever you want. That's their plan anyway. All of this, though, is too much for Simon, who in the present now is is overwhelmed by this knowledge and he's falling into a state of real 
despair. And here is where we get the, the final paragraph of the story. Laughing, weeping, with my dead foot dragged behind, I circle, circle round, forever round beneath an empty sky that neither man nor martyr ever rose toward, nor ever saw the flame of man relit when once his spark had gone, nor ever knew of any resurrection. And that's the end of the story. Yeah, this is, well, it's a pretty bleak story. It might be the most despairing story in Voice of the Fire so far. And this this whole scene, right, this, this bit that you've just read, this comes at the conclusion of this scene that is Simon dragging his wife and his squire out into the night in in the rain. It's Halloween, or it actually might be the night of November 1st. We can talk about that in the discussion. <laughs> but yeah, it's, you know, so it's autumn. It's the middle of autumn. It's cold. It's rainy. There's, there is some other religious, non-Christian religious ceremony happening in the countryside that they're aware <laughs> of while they're out. And Simon wants to drag his wife, who loathes him, and his squire, who maybe just thinks of him as a job and doesn't actually care for him either, down to see the foundation and the vaults of this church that will be completed in about another decade or so. And he has this like religious breakdown here in like the mud, in the rain at night while this is happening. And it's really cinematic, right? Like I could actually see this image, see how you would you would film this and then, you know, fade to black and then, you know, roll the credits and then we would have some some music over all of that. And then everyone would trudge out of the theater feeling pretty bad about life um, and then have to step into the sunshine <laughs> or something like that, have that type of jarring experience. But yeah, it's, it's a bleak story. That's something we'll definitely take up in the discussion. In fact, there's a lot to do in the discussion, but uh, because there's so much to do, that's going to have to wait for another episode. And so that is going to do it for this one. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. Thanks again for listening. And if you like what we've done here, you can find us and all our other shows at claytemplemedia.com. Let me say thank you again so much to the Patreon supporter who nominated this story and, well, the other Patreon supporters who voted for it. If you'd like to participate in that process, I hope you'll join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. Uh, you can get access there to the episode that Jay and I have done on the history of the Necronomicon. Also, if you're here for Alan Moore and uh, not for the Necronomicon, hey, that's also where we've done an entire bonus series on Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing. Next time, here on Elder Sign, we will be back with the discussion episode for this story, Lumping to Jerusalem. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>